where nobody knows your name, the 100th episode spectacular is not filmed in front of a live studio audience. Hello and welcome to Where Nobody Knows Your Name. That's right, it's episode 100 and the season 4 review. How are you, John? I'm doing well. You, you caught me off guard with the spectacular. I feel like I need to bring it now. <laughs> we always bring it, John. That's true, that's true, yeah. What am I saying? Every episode we treat like a 100th episode. I'll tell you what, John, I've got myself a special treat for this episode. Yeah? What are we talking about? Uh, I'm dining on chocolate cake as we speak. A lot more dedicated than me. I've got a coffee, say. So. Oh, I've also got coffee. Maybe by the end we'll have a special that will sort of encapsulate the 100th birthday or 100th episode. The stars have a line, James, because not only is this our 100th episode... It's also our season review of season four. Yes, and I gotta say, I think this has been my favourite season, both in terms of the content of Cheers as a show, but what we've been proud of, because we've not only reached our 100th episode, but we also got to interview Ken Levine, which was very exciting. I think it's been quite a season, and, and as you said, the, the season itself, I think there's been no, I was going to say letdown episodes, not that there have been let down in the past, but all of these have been really stellar episodes. Quite a consistent season. Yes, picking my favourite episodes was a challenge this time around. Yeah, I think I think the, the thing which I'm, I'm sure we'll get on to later on is that you've kind of had to look at it and kind of go, they're very categorised episodes where some are like really fun, some are really sort of character building, some are really in depth, but all of them are really like stellar in what they're trying to do. No point where they misstepped. I mean, where, where do you want to kick it off, James? I think we can run through what the critics thought at the time. Okay, let's go for our critics of you. Similar to the previous season, this season of NBC's Thursday Night lineup was a rating success. We'll get that off that first. Little sports reference. Hick. Can't have a 100th episode without a sports reference. We've got <laughs> it done. Knocked it out the park. Starting at 8pm Eastern Standard Time, it consisted of The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court, Hill Street Blues. Good lineup. Strong lineup, yeah, with Cheers slap bang in the middle. Cheers aired at 9pm against CBS's Simon and Simon and ABC's The Colbys. On 26th of December 1985, the Akron Beacon Journal revealed that viewership in Nielsen ratings had increased by 33% compared to the previous season. According to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, by 29th of January 1986, it became one of the top three shows among women along with The Cosby Show and Family Ties, all of which classed as must-see TV. As of 23rd of April 1986, it had, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, a Nielsen rating of 23.7 and a share of 35, putting it in fifth place for the 1985-1986 to season. <sighs> Rick Sherwood of the Gainesville Sun preferred this season to the previous ones. He had thought it like any typical sitcom, despite being disdainful of the Sam-Diane relationship, he called this season the funniest and most intelligent since the debut season in a review published on Halloween 1985. There was also talks about the cliffhanger at the end and how critics and audiences respond to that. But I think we'll get to that when we'll talk about it. That was quite a summary there, James. The critics raved. Jeffrey Robinson of DVD Talk said in January 2005 he thought this season not as great, strongly watchable or hilarious as previous seasons, calling it episodic but worth watching. I'm not sure I agree with the episodic comment there, Jeff. But <laughs> Jeff? <laughs> Adam Arsenal of DVD Verdict described it as impeccable and golden, giving story and acting 95 and 94% respectively in a review from February 2005. 
These critics praised Woody if criticizing the awkward manner he was introduced through the unexplained and unceremonious death of Coach, which is definitely something that we can dissect in this season four review. They also praised the growing prominence of Frasier and the guest appearance of B.B. Neurath as Dr. Lilith Sternen. Nate Mayers of Digitally Obsessed said in a review from February 2005 that he thought this season had aged well and was still fresh, particularly after omitting instances of topical humor and characters that were still developing. In June 2012, Robert David Sullivan rated I'll Gladly Pay You Tuesday as number 36 in his top 100 sitcom episodes. For some context, he also rated the two-part season two finale, I'll Be Seeing You, as number four. All cast except Woody Harrelson and recurring cast member Kelsey Grammer were nominated for Emmys in 1986. Rhea Perlman won for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Miniseries. Episode 21, Fear Is My Co-Pilot, earned Michael Barlin, Robert Douglas, Douglas Gray, and Thomas J. Huth the award for Outstanding Sound Mixing for a Comedy Series or Special. Shelley Long won the Viewers for Quality Television Award for Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. So you'd say people... Quite like the program. Sorry, yeah, quite good. Some of the things which sort of uh, stand out to me there is a couple of the reviews that you said are like 2005. And it does show that this season, I think in particular, does kind of, I think it's aged better than other seasons, where some of the other seasons have kind of moments of like, yeah, yeah, you sure? But I think overall, like we said a little bit, it dips into fun episodes and it dips into more serious episodes, but it executes them quite well and quite universally, but they're still holding up today. Yes, you've alluded to this in the past. Do you think the introduction of Woody allowed it to have a new demographic, perhaps? We've had Barry in, in the previous season. He talked about as a young viewer, he most connected with Woody because of Woody being the youngest cast member. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely something which has opened up a lot more opportunity with the, the writing. It's pushed other characters into other roles, if that makes sense. But I would agree that the introduction of Woody was a little bit clunky. And I think especially since we've been watching them weekly, the transition is a bit more abrupt. There was no sort of break. And I guess the reason is obviously very sad why the change had to be made. I think Woody Harrelson, casting-wise, and the character Woody Boyd was really smart. It was a smart choice. And I think he's really endearing. And I think it bridged that time really well. And I think I think the transition was maybe a little bit abrupt, but I think by the end of this episode, the legacy of the show sort of continues. And like I say, it pushes characters into new sort of stories and new places, which is really interesting for them. Yes, I definitely think so. I suppose we could talk about the storylines of all the characters, including Frasier. But as we're talking about Woody, we can start with him. And I think as a newcomer to the bar, this young farm boy had to get accustomed to the big city and leaving his old life behind. Some episodes delved into this specifically. Others had it as a character trait in the background. But throughout the whole season, that was his journey, if you like. Yeah, he had very much the eyes of wonder towards almost everything. There are like quite nice little throwbacks to it his past, I guess, in episodes like From Beer to Eternity, where you find out he's got sort of like a trauma of a like bowling past and things like that. And there's really nice sort of throwbacks to that. And I think he's one of the sort of, he drives a sort of new theme in the series, which we'll probably touch on later, which is kind of youth and naivety, I guess. Yes. Uh, And this was the season that we saw openly Sam struggling with his age and how that affected his past fame. Should we move into Sam's arc of the series then? I believe so, yeah. Uh, It starts off quite tragically where he reveals he was sold into slavery um, (laughs) while in Italy, which was, okay, pulling out the big guns for your first lines. Okay, Sam. 
Yeah, I think as a character, he was a lot more introspective than previous seasons. He's been thinking about his actions and behavior more than he has previously. And I think this is uh, where Woody's sort of introduction changes his dynamics. It pushes Sam into a more mentor, an elder role, I guess. He's very much now not the, the kid on the scene, but he's the patriarchy of the, of the bar, maybe. That's it, yeah. And I think while Coach and Sam had... Coach was almost like a surrogate father to Sam, particularly because Sam's relationship with his own father was somewhat strained, I guess. Mm. Sam was like the older brother to Woody. It wasn't quite a fatherly role because Woody could still, you know, argue with him and still was still able to fight back, at least, which you wouldn't do in a fatherly role, or at least not something which Sam did to coach. But yeah, there was definitely almost like this sibling rivalry between them at times when Sam gets a hernia from (laughs) trying to beat Woody in tennis, for example. Yeah, Sam's definitely struggling with ageing distastefully in this season, I'd I'd say, maybe. And obviously Sam's storyline is almost always intertwined with Diane's up until this point. So in the first episode, we we kind of see what Diane's been up to in the time jump, and she's been in a convent uh, repenting her sins. And I guess uh, that, that was kind of the setup in episode one of she's trying to do penance for what she's done in Europe after leaving Fraser at the altar at the end of season three. This idea that maybe she's going to do more penance by working at Cheers, I think, is kind of one element of it. Yes, and we talked about that in the premiere, that what is the true penance? And she she, she does go through quite a bit of, uh, not trauma trauma, there are some fairly sort of ups and downs, at least, in her arc through this series. And at some point, she, she talks about Cheers and goes, holy forking shirt balls, this is the bad place. <laughs> <laughs> Carla also has a good run in this season, I'd say. She's also starting to feel old, I suspect, because of Anthony growing up. They grow up so fast, John. <laughs> but you say that, she does get some youthful moments in uh, Save the Last Dance for Me. There is quite a sort of nostalgic era of Carla at this point, because she very much is living in the past, but also her kids are growing up. And there's quite a few moments with her kids coming into the bar with dates, putting Carla in sort of a very maternal role which is quite conflicting with how she is normally very sort of... Taking no prisoners. Yeah, but she still does. Interestingly, it's not just her kids. Her family have moved away, or at least Nick has. Nick and Loretta have moved to New Jersey. So I suppose she's feeling sort of wistful as these characters do grow up. She's got the youngest ones living with her and they're still very much depending on her. But the likes of Anthony, I wouldn't say depends on her as much. Serafina is starting to go on dates. So yeah, I think Carla's started to see her children become their parents, because Anthony and Nick certainly have similarities. But I, I do like this idea of that Carla's had a few like throwback episodes where, obviously the Boston Boppers, where she's sort of reliving her youth, but also Cliffy's Big Score, where she's going on a date. And she has a good time on that date. <laughs> she has a great time <laughs> with Lucas. Should we move on to Cliff, seeing as we've sort of dabbled into Cliffy's Big Score? Yeah. Because Cliff has an interesting season, I think. I think it's the season where Cliff has gone off the deep end. Um, <laughs> I thought his obsession with Florida was bad. Well, his obsession with Florida was annoying but uh, at times, but it wasn't psychologically concerning. It was just someone who really liked Florida, and you're going, okay, 
fine. This season, you're going, I am concerned. Yeah, this season he has an obsession with vegetables. Which look like celebrities. Yeah, I think we can move past that pretty quick, to be honest. What I've got in the notes is, fearing abandonment and disappointing others even further, his descent into insanity takes new turns this season. Which could be, you know, a description of season two of Ratched. (laughs) (laughs) We do get masterly, but we get an idea of his abandonment in there. You could see why he wants attention, because though his mother is doting, I'd say she's not necessarily attentive. She strikes her as the kind of person who goes, oh, you're laid back from work. Ma, was that cheers? You know, whereas his dad is just not there. I start to get vibes where it's like, I know we haven't seen Ma at this point. I doubt we ever will. I feel like it's going to sort of be a, a Mannering's wife kind of situation. Or Vera, yeah. Uh, I have a feeling like it's kind of like psycho. <laughs> <laughs> just a skeleton in drag. Yeah, a uh, cliff running around in, in women's clothes with a, a knife. We've heard Ma, haven't we? Mm. We've heard Ma, voiced by uh, Francis Stonehagen. But Cliff could do the impression, I uh, don't doubt that. <laughs> Norm's had quite a good season, I'd say. I, I'd say he's been more in the background than other seasons. Yeah, there haven't been really as many high stakes for Norm. I, I think, was it season two we christened it the season of Norm? Yeah, I, we haven't really had many like that. I think there was only maybe one. Throughout the course of this season, in sporadic episodes, he's between work and moving from job to job, it seems. But he does find new priorities in regards to his marriage. Hmm. There have been a couple of times where he's called Vera from the bar to remind her that he loves her. And when Donna arrived for the three-part at the end, he felt intimidated, I suppose, by Donna's comfort with nudity but norm i don't think ever wanted to do anything with donna or was tempted i think he was just like there's this naked person in the house only i'm allowed to be naked in this house also i'm pretty sure vera and donna are both invisible so (laughs) there was a standout episode for norm which was the peterson principle written by peter casey and david lee which as you mentioned it's one episode where he really does sort of defend vera it's an episode where he really does have to stand by vera and I think Diane sort of comments that it's the nicest thing she's ever seen anyone do or something. So I'd say that was a standout for Norm maybe through this season. And then I think finally, Fraser, who through this season has sort of uh, went on a journey, I'd say. He's definitely, I'm glad he's returned. You and I were concerned that after he was jilted, we were just like, well, now we say goodbye to Fraser Crane. This crane has flown the nest. Well, I'd say something I definitely didn't expect. Didn't expect him to come back and start being a janitor at Cheers, but that happened. And Woody going, I was talking to the janitor at Cheers about sublimation. <laughs> but he, I think he does have some really good episodes. And at this point, he's still just recurring at the moment. I'm looking forward to seeing where his story goes in the future. What I found interesting was that Frasier's storyline had a lot of parallels to Sam's life, both present and past in, you know, that descent into alcoholism, but also the animosity towards Diane. So that was interesting, seeing the parallel between these two men who were previously designed as complete opposites. And I think that's kind of one of the, quite a similar thing as well, is both of them have veered away from Diane, but they seem to come back round. So within this season, Frasier became less and less attached to Diane. He even got engaged in, in the second time around. For candy. Yeah, in Diane Chambers Day, he set up almost a perfect day for Diane, but didn't feel like he needed to be there. Perhaps didn't want to. Yeah. It hurt too much. But then by the end in Strange Bedfellows, he's sort of back invested in trying to make things work. It's been a roller coaster of emotions for Fraser, but he's definitely coming to his own and they've definitely accepted him 
Uh, I think Norm's his best friend. I think most people. I think Cliff's his best patient. <laughs> yeah, he definitely gets the most money from Cliff. But I think most people in Cheers have a sort of strained relationship with Frasier because of previous things that they'd set up. So Sam and Frasier, they used to be rivals. Diane and Frasier, ex-lovers, so there's some animosity there. Carla hates everyone. Cliff doesn't know what's going on. So really it just leaves Norm. And Norm's quite down to earth. So I think, yeah, I think Norm's kind of been like, you know what, Frasier, we thought you were a bit weird. And maybe you still are, but you're not as weird as Cliff. So pull up a stool. I tell you what, we've kind of summarised everyone's uh, arcs. What would you say some of the highest highs were, James? I think the gang-beating guys at bowling was a nice moment. A sense of victory for the bar, with Diane coming in and saving the day. No, definitely. I I think that leans into the, the funnest parts of the season. I thought also the the Boston Boppers reunion was a really good moment. Never expected I'd see a dance contest in Cheers. So graceful. The grace of a bull's one. So home on the range. Yeah. That was nice. Mm-hmm. I know you like this episode and it turned out to be a dream, but Andy's redemption <laughs> in which we saw Nancy Cartwright. That was that was fun. <laughs> Andy Andy's return is always welcomed. <laughs> one thing which was a high, if not for everyone in Cheers, but certainly for Frasier, was in the episode The Triangle. It's when they have to pretend that Sam has some psychological issue that so that Frasier can get back on his feet. And the moment I'm thinking of is where Frasier tells Sam and Diane he's had enough of their nonsense because they're unwilling to admit their love for each other. And he goes, I wash my hands of you and leaves. But I think that was a strong moment for Frasier. Until he was back the next day drinking again. He left the office, went straight to the bar. He pulled a Diane and you'll never see me again. I suppose we've got to talk about the lowest lows. Yeah, I suppose that's Diane's moment when she left the bar. Pick any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Coach's off-screen death was, we didn't see it, but we did hear Diane say of his thoughts on the afterlife, gee, I hope there's not a lot of stairs, which is both profound and whimsical and endearing and just very Coach. Do you think it's quite a, a good thing that they didn't dwell on it too much? I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing, but I know that it would be a difficult thing because I don't know how else they could have done it. Mm. In Only Fools and Horses, when Grandad dies and Uncle Albert came in, they saw Uncle Albert at Grandad's funeral because they're related. And that's how they introduced that. And I think if they were to try to give it more gravitas, it would have been having a funeral for Coach. I don't know what comedic situations they could have got from that. If it had delved into farce in terms of trying to arrange a funeral, it could have come across as disrespectful. So I think it would have been a difficult thing to do. So I think by doing it this way, they were playing it safe, avoiding any potential minefields. So whether it's good or bad, I don't know, but I think it made sense. But of course, there's another low moment was a uh, Lance Mannion staring out of a hospital window old and alone in Boston. Yeah, Dark Imaginings was quite a uh, low episode, really. It was, but a very good one. Mm, yeah. Just quite surprising. At the end, just going, well, I guess I guess we're all going to die alone. Way! Another low that I, I put in was uh, in Relief Bartender when Woody gets fired. That was low, wasn't it? Because we'd spent the whole series growing to love Woody. And then he, he does get fired. In the last inning, he gets replaced by Ken. You're trying to get some more uh, puns in there. But I think that the thing that I found kind of interesting about that was it wasn't like, it could have been played very differently of like, Woody, it's fine, you can come back. And it's like, yeah, it all worked out as a happy ending. Woody kind of 
approached it in a much more, they wrote him in a much more real scenario. That wasn't sitcom. It was, you fired me. This was everything I had. And you expect me to run back and celebrate kind of thing. And I liked how it was played, not necessarily as a happy ending. It kind of still had the weight of the scenario that had unfolded. Yeah, exactly. I think a, a lesser sitcom and maybe a, a more recent sitcom would kind of play it as a celebration of, oh, it's it's fine. They got a different job and you can come back. They'd either do it as a celebration or have it just completely <laughs> void of emotion. Just, okay. And then just goes behind the bar again. <laughs> You know, but yeah, no, as you say, Woody reacted to it in a way which was fairly realistic, but also showed the intelligence of the character, Mm. which we took for granted. What shall we move on to next, James? Cliff Sr. abandoning Cliff again. Yeah, that was a harsh one. He went into the bathroom and vanished. Combusted, I thought. (laughs) What was also the only time we've seen Carla sort of comforting Cliff. Yeah. I think we touched on this a little bit earlier where she's almost had some more maternal moments through the season. Maybe that's rubbing off on how she treats Cliff because he was a a child in that scenario. He says, it's just his dad abandoned him. And Nick has done something similar to Carla's own children. So she could certainly understand the impact of that. Some other low points are Janet breaking up with Sam. Mm -hmm. That was strangely powerful considering it was at the end of the season and the journey Sam had gone through in terms of looking for something more meaningful, but also the reveal that Mitch Wainwright doesn't exist. Yeah, that was was quite a sad one. Yeah, Carla's been on her journey this season as well. She seems to always have hopes that get dashed. Yes, and I suppose as a character, we delved into this briefly throughout this season, I suppose as a character, that's why religion is so meaningful to her. Mm. It gives her that sense of belonging, sense of purpose, which a lot of the characters have lacked and have been emotionally wrought by mm. Sam and Frasier, for example. Whereas Carla's always had this one constant in her life for her to hold on to. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so James, I've, I've kind of pinpointed some low points for Sam through three episodes. When, when we think of Sam in previous seasons, we kind of think of chauvinistic, womanizer, and sort of semi-famous. You've done it. You've broken Sam down to his bare essentials. Well, and then this season has broken him, broken those essentials down even more. Don Juan is Hal. That devastates him. Makes him realise he's not a womanizer, really. Or that's all, all he is. It makes him feel bad about it. Take my shirt, please. Destroys him. He's no longer famous. He, he feels destroyed by that. And then if things can't get worse, dark imaginings just sort of totally whips it he's got a hernia and then this always kind of gets summarized in relief bartender where, where he feels like he's gonna like oh i'm aging on i'm gonna reclaim my, my fame a little bit i'll become a manager slash host and even then people don't know who he is he's losing money it's a tragedy people come into the bar and one woman goes please get rid of this man who is this man why is he wearing that suit and he's there going uh the autographs are free but the drinks cost money and she's like leave me alone this is a terrible season for sam who are you i made him alone who (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's kind of what changes sam's position of sort of reflecting on life by the time we come into the the last three episodes where he's now more open for something stable something more more meaningful he even tries to get sort of like a a sort of political fame (laughs) Well, you delved into a few of the themes there. Certainly legacy and reputation, age, redemption. Mm. One thing this is constant through Choose is that sense of community and 
family. And I think with the introduction of Woody, that was certainly present this year because there was a lot of changes that the gang were going through. The dynamic had changed. It was the first major cast change we've seen. Previous to this, it was Cliff being promoted to a main character because he was a recurring character in season one. That's a little known fact for you to snack on. (laughs) 100 episodes, I'm not giving up. (laughs) But with Cliff, they didn't need to adjust, really. But with this new character of Woody and Frasier's new dynamic, there was a lot of change they needed to do. And they had to get used to that, didn't they? Yeah, and I think that's where one of the the themes sort of come in and and almost acts as the uh, juxtaposition. Throwing big words, aren't there, James? Juxtaposition to Sam's downward spiral is sort of the the rise of Woody, the rise of youth. <laughs> the rise of Woody is not a phrase you want to use. <laughs> um, I mentioned a little bit about how there's sort of a perceived naivety of youth in the season. I suppose this is a, kind of is a little bit of a callback to the very first cold opening episode one. This idea that all the sort of youthful characters have a sort of beyond their years wistfulness. And even in like episodes like the Greenwall Clearer Cell, they've got old before their time kind of vibe about them. Yes, because Anthony's trying to get married, isn't he? Yeah. And, and I think that that kind of comes into play a little bit throughout the season where this idea that maybe the youth are going down the same path that people have took and they're kind of looking at it with hindsight. But I I think it plays into it that Sam and Woody do have this kind of yin and yang about them where they're kind of both sides of the the same coin. Sam looks at the mistakes that he thinks Woody's going to make and thinks they're going to reflect what happened to him. I think one of these is kind of most prevalent in Fools and Their Money where Sam doesn't place Woody's bet thinking it's for his own good. I think it kind of shows that maybe history doesn't repeat itself always. And Woody's like, where's my money, punk? (laughs) Old man, a couple of weeks later, Sam's fired him. (laughs) Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) There's definitely that aspect of the aging. We've discussed before the potential ages of the characters. We know Norm is 35 or 36 because he's had his birthday in one of these episodes. And it's been alluded to that there's an age gap between Diane and Sam. Not anything untoward, but enough for their cultural references to be a bit things but it hadn't really been a major theme until this season and yeah things are developing i think woody certainly helped bring that about because of the new roles that sam and carla less so diane but sam and carla had to take on yeah and i think one quote from this season was when sam was in hospital and the doctor comes in and recognizes diane as his old babysitter, he leaves and Dan says, I'm old and alone in Boston, I think. She kind of had an upper hand where she felt like she was still youthful and at the prime of her life. And then just in a very short sequence, she's sort of brought down to the same kind of level that Sam's feeling. Yeah, because Sam's pushing 40 in this season. So late 30s. I'd imagine Diane is early 30s, probably. Mm-hmm. There's another quote that I like from this season, James. Boy, I guess it's true what they say her. There's a fine line between gardening and madness. And it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which this is obviously uh, Cliff realising he's, he's insane. What a way to realise. <laughs> what is it? Uh, a corn-shaped... What was the actress? Meryl Streep? Yeah, corn-shaped Meryl Streep helped him show him the way. I mean, that's the wonders of Meryl Streep, John. Any quotes stand out to you this season, James? I've got some great quotes. I've already said, I hope there aren't a lot of stares from the first episode. This one, just because it's such a non-sequitur. 
that it makes me laugh is, so there we were, me and 20 of five soaking wet Japanese architects in my apartment, and I'm out of brie. <laughs> of course, from Someday My Prince Will Come. This is from Anthony, played by Timothy Williams, to Gabrielle, played by Sherilyn Fenn. Gabrielle, you ever have a hard fudge sundae for breakfast? <laughs> Classic, Anthony. Another one, which is very on brand for me. I kind of like my cookies this way. Takes the work out of chewing, you know, <laughs> as we're in Sam's angrily smashing things up. Another episode, which was quite nice by Norm, was telling Woody about when he first met Vera when she was a cheerleader. But he was in high school and he saw this cheerleader and he knew the moment he saw her that he wanted to make that gal his wife, which is lovely. A great one from Woody. Now she's going to get those drums and with heavy metal coming back, who knows what might happen. You've alluded to this is when Sam realizes that his shirt hasn't sold and he refers to himself as an ex-ex-baseball player. Just an average guy doing an average job. That's something he can be proud of. I've said it was a high point. Frasier scolding Sam and Diane for their nonsense. We're all three pitiful menage boobs. Well, this boob is moving on. <laughs> it's time to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I think Frasier's had some uh, good one-liners. And I think one of the ones which I particularly liked was when the the lodge had come in the sort of freemasons and he said as dr ludgo would say i'll speak no thought but my own yeah i'll speak no thought but my own which i thought was a great sort of one-liner it's commonly been referred to as the best written joke in cheers it's just a twofer just two lines it's between fraser and woody Fraser walks in and goes, everyone, I'd like you to meet my date, Dr. Lilith Stone, an MD, PhD, EDD, APA. And what's Woody's response? It says that's a funny way to spell it or something. Boy, it's sure not spelled how it sounds. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I think one of my, uh, I'm not sure if this is, counts as a quote, because it's sang. But I think, uh, and you mentioned it already, one of the standouts for me is, is the home, home on the range moment. We talked a little bit about how they honoured Coach, and I think this is probably one of the biggest and best ways they did, maybe? Because it felt like a moment which really was part of that legacy and continuing the show with and never forgetting. It seemed so much like something Coach would do. Like we've seen when Coach was impersonating T-Bone and going, no, no, that's not how he talks. I can imagine Coach saying the same lines as Woody, just going, we should sing Home on the Range. Sam, can you start? <laughs> you know, that kind of exchange is very much reminiscent of Coach and everyone in the bar joining on. I think it's the closest we got as an in-memoriam to him. Mm. Some other moments were Diane praying to help her choose whether to go back to Cheers, which I suppose set off her inner conflict throughout the rest of the season. Mm -hmm. We had Sam and Diane reminiscing over their relationship while fearing death, specifically a plane crash, which was, again, quite a dark place for Cheers to go to. But uh, it was certainly poignant and reflective of the journey they'd taken thus far. I'm just trying to theorise. Maybe Cheers is hell. <laughs> I mean, Life on Mars, the sci-fi... Crime drama? Yeah. Manchester in the 70s, maybe? Yeah, Manchester in the early 70s. Not the US version. For your <laughs> US listeners, in the British version, they don't actually go to Mars. Whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. But in the UK version, the bar that they go to, the bartender is seen almost as a St. Peter type, when at the end of Ashes to Ashes, the, I suppose, sequel series, it was revealed that they were in a sort of limbo. What happened is cops, they got hit by a car or faced some kind of incident in modern day and ended up in this time period in the respective cities they grew up in. And it turned out to be some kind of limbo for law enforcement. 
and the bartender in Life on Mars was a sort of St. Peter type, and the bar was seen as this, what would you call it, transitionary gate, that's the word. It was sort of seen as uh, perhaps a pearly gate to get into, into heaven, and that's what the bartender represented. So it's certainly interesting that Diane's had to choose a personal hell and how Life on Mars may have given a metaphor for that and how that could have taken on a further meaning with what we know from Life on Mars. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. It could be nonsense, but it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one more quote that I have. Very poignant. I'll give this quote, then we'll talk about our favourite episodes, and then I suppose we'll dissect this quote more and what it means. The quote, it's the final quote of the series, John. It's, I've been thinking about you, and what the hell? Will you marry me? Yeah. What a way to end the season. Now, we'll unpack that soon. We'll unpack that like a suitcase. Before we do that, favourite episodes. Favourite episodes that lead up to that poignant moment. Gone through all 26 episodes of this (laughs) season and listed them in my preference, which was a difficult job. I've said at the opening of this that finding the favourite episodes for this season was more difficult than the previous seasons. And even the one which was lowest on the list was still quite good. And it I felt bad putting it at the lowest point. Well, I'll kick it off because I, I, I'm in the same situation where the one I've put lowest in my favourites is still a standout. And I think you'll, you'll probably have this one a bit higher up. From Beer to Eternity. I do have that one higher up. Yes. But you might. Such a good one. I, I, I liked how it was such a sort of bottled episode. We got to visit a bowling alley. That was pretty cool. We got, we got an introduction to Gary's Old Town Tavern. Yeah, just a, it was quite a nice sort of introduction to Woody, but it also let him let people down, which I thought was quite nice. He didn't go in and save the day. I placed that episode a bit higher up. It was 10th favourite on my list, so, you know, mi- midway. I'll tell you what my top five are. Fifth, Diane's Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Some solid moments in there. Nice to see Andy return. Fourth for me, Don Juan is Hell. That was a nice one. That was on par with From Beer to Eternity for me. Number three, Diane Chambers Day. It's a good one. I had, uh, I'll gladly play you Tuesday there. I tell you why, I did like that episode. It kind of felt a bit like an OG episode, an original episode where it was all sort of bar set. Mm, yes. For a season where we do get to have a lot of fun in different locations, it was nice to have one which was very much sort of a bottle episode that was just sort of very sort of character driven by uh, two characters in a book. Yes, I certainly see what you mean there. I'll gladly play you Tuesday for me was just below From Beer to Eternity. For number two, perhaps controversially, I chose part two of Strange Bedfellows, the one in the middle. I think it was stronger than the ones either side. And for me, it was over the whole season, it was my second favourite. Cliffy's big score. <laughs> ah, yes, the one which Troy joined us for. Yeah, I thought it was a really fun episode. I liked uh Lucas as a guest star and totally different from the reasons why I liked I'll Gladly Play You Tuesday. I really like Cliffy's big score because it, it took us to sort of new, I was going to say a new location. There was a shot in the car. And there was an establishing shot of the venue also. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was nice to see, you know, Cliffy uh, have a bit of a his heyday in an episode. He'd had a lot of downs. I mean, he definitely had a down in that episode, but he had an up first. Well, he got abandoned in the woods. That's happened to a few people. Frasier. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to get abandoned in the woods next? Stay tuned for season five. <laughs> Top episode for me, I think this is quite expected. I don't think you'll be surprised by it. I put Dark Imaginings as my favourite episode. Mm-hmm. I think from how we discussed it, you knew how fond I was of that episode. But what was your 
top one. I think this is uh, something that we said right at the beginning where you could very much sort of split the episodes into fun episodes and sort of more serious and character building episodes. So I think my top ones have reflected the fun side because my favourite number one was Save the Last Dance for me. It was fun. So I just thought it was a really nice, wild sort of developed episode which gave characters a really nice sort of arc i also liked you know dan hader back and this time on the dance floor doing some moves i just found it as quite a fun surreal episode but then also at the end we kind of got that heartful moment of carla thinking she had sort of recaptured her young love only to find out that he's invited her on holiday with his current wife there was some symbolism in this because she took a key ingredient of leap into an open grave a family recipe mm. and egged him. And I think there was some symbolism in taking, you know, a key part of a family heirloom of a family tradition mm. and imposing it on him in an act of revenge as if to go, you can't have this. But what I would say is, just looking at our rundown of top ones, it does show how sort of consistent the series is in quality, but in themes and sort of how they have scripted episodes to fulfill sort of different points of character development and sitcom levity they've got a broad range where your top list can be very drastically different depending on what you took from or just what what mood you're in you know i was in a feel-good light-hearted mood james you you wanted to stare on a plain glass window with rain it's definitely as you say reflective of the mood if you're looking for a light-hearted start to the day then don't stick on dark imaginings (laughs) here in the uk monday to friday cheers is shown in the breakfast hour the concept of someone going before i go off to my nine to five stick a bit of cheers on I, I was going to say this when you mentioned up top at this episode that the, the sort of airtime was nine and i know it has been since season two but you kind of forget at least i i forget how late the, this kind of played because i'm so used to it being sort of broadcast as you say early mornings sundays at like nine in the morning it is such a sort of tonal you kind of uh, not not forget but you, you don't appreciate that it was scripted as quite a sort of late program i wonder if uh, the reruns in the uk do omit some of the sort of not necessarily darker episodes but well the thing is it's certificate 12 and there's no slurs as sort there's no social inappropriate slurs that they use so i don't think they'd be censoring anything so they'd be able to show it early in early in the morning but as I say, there's certainly things which you might feel a bit downhearted. It's my joy gone for today. <laughs> today will be a sad day. But you know, it's what Ken was saying, that any televisual or any narrative, really, it's more important for it to make you feel something than for you to laugh. Mm. And I think that's definitely a idea which has been the case for this season, where we've laughed a lot. But as you say about that split, they've been fun and enjoyable, but they've also been quite profound and thought provoking, either of which have that emotional engagement, regardless of how funny they are. You could remove all the humorous aspects from either of those types of stories and still have a good story. Mm. Just shows the quality of writing that is cheers. You know what that means, John? It's special delivery time for our 100th episode. Huzzah! Awards. Oh, awards? This is the season award rundown. We'll start off with a list of favourite guest actors, I think. Yeah, I, I don't mind kicking it off here, as I've mentioned uh, how, how I liked them in this episode previously. Dan Hedaya, busting out some dance moves. I mean, I, I don't see how you're going to top that, James, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've got a selection here of various performances. Some extended family, Timothy Williams's Anthony, 
Mandy Ingber as Annie a rare treat because we hadn't heard of her existence before this, but she came in and uh, did a great job, uh, particularly her back and forth with Carla. Mm. Sherilyn Fenn as Gabriel for the one scene. Just that, I suppose, ensemble for that episode worked very well for me. Derek McGrath as Andy and Nancy Cartwright as Cynthia. Joel Polis as Gary. Dick O'Neill as Cliff Sr. Timothy Scott as Lucas. B.B. Newarth as Dr. Lilith Sternen. Joseph Whip as Jack Dalton. And for our first three-parter, Kate Mulgrew as Janet Eldridge. What a wealth of uh, guest stars. There, there was a lot of people dropping in this season. Who are you giving your, your uh, award for best actor to then? Or be- best guest actor? I think Kate Mulgrew as Janet Eldridge. I, we doubt about it in the three-parter how we discussed. But it was a difficult character to play. But I think she did a fantastic job. And I think, and audiences thought at the time, that there was a sense that you had to choose between them. And as opposed to previous guests, it was something you had to actually think about as opposed to just going, well, this person's clearly annoying. We don't want them. Mm. You know, Janet wasn't necessarily portrayed as a villain. She had some selfish motives, I suppose, or more accurately, self-oriented motives. But I think any character in Cheers has exhibited those. So I guess you're wondering, what did people think of Janet. A new segment. There was a reader survey, I'll have you know. Okay. Which publication, James? I want to I verify the publication. There was a reader survey was published following Sam's proposal, Cliffhanger, as to who they thought the recipient was. It was an article published in The Reading Eagle on 25th of September, 1986, revealed that out of 200 voters, 70% voted for Diane and 30% voted for Janet, uh, as in terms of who the recipient was. So uh, at 70-30. Interestingly, many who voted for Janet were not necessarily fans, though they did consider her funny or appealing, but they rather expected it to create a love triangle for season five. I like that there were probably like two boxes to tick. One, who do you think Sam has proposed to? The second question, do you watch Cheers? And it was like 50-50 chance on the first one and a no. They expected it to create a love triangle for season five. Maybe it will. Many thought Janet was wrong for Sam and even sent pictures of the character drawn over to look like the devil, which is harsh. Kate Mulgrew seems lovely. What, how dare they do that? <laughs> I voted for Boaty McBoatface, James. I was sure he proposed to her. <laughs> I think he w- was calling Jacqueline Bissett. <laughs> it's a callback. But yeah, no, I really liked Kate Mulgrew's performance. I really liked her as a character. I think I would also be in the camp of people who, without necessarily thinking he was proposing to Janet, I would like to see the rivalry between Janet and Diane continue into season five. Perhaps not immediately, but as a sporadic thing throughout, you know, because she's elected, she's in the public eye. So if their relationship didn't continue, it'd be interesting to see the fallout from that. Raises taxes. <laughs> it sounds the worst nightmare. Councillor Janet Eldridge, following her breakup with Sam Malone, has voted to raise taxes in the greater Boston area. I'm just, I'm just picturing that, uh, you know, like in The Simpsons when the lawyers come in and it's like a, a Disney lawsuit and, and two goons come in and smash up like a lemonade stand. That's what I feel like is going to happen to Cheers. Kate Mulgrew, obviously known for her roses, Catherine Jane Ray and Red, is a powerhouse in acting. And in an early role such as this, I think she did an incredible job, which was only more evident in this three-parter. Well, who was your favourite? It's hard to say. I, I, it feels like a bit of a, a, a cop-out to say Dan Hedaya, because he, he's, he's his guest 
actor in every season pretty much so far. But I think he brought it this season. He went out of his way above and beyond, you know. I, d- I did like the inclusion of Dick O'Neill as Cliff's dad. I thought it was a nice addition. But I, I feel like he, he, there could have been more scope with the character to do a bit more. I think it was a, a shame he, he, he ran off through a window. And uh, of course, Derek McGrath's return as well was always welcomed as uh, Andy, 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 Andy. To both Derek and Dan as sporadic characters in Cheers who always bring it, don't they? Mm. They always deliver much more than Cliff. <laughs> it was a postman joke. It's not criticising. It felt like a criticism. It was a postman pun. Keep your postman puns to yourself. James, our next award is uh, for going places, the best locations visited. And there are, there are a few here. In episode one, we, we got to visit a convent. Don't think that would happen in Cheers. In Diane Day, we got to uh, visit the opera, which, you know, again, very, very classy. Fear is my co-pilot. We went in a plane. <laughs> <laughs> From beer to eternity, we got to go to a bowling alley. That was nice. But what I'm going to give the, the award for, James, is, uh, and I don't think this is a surprise because I think I've, I've talked about this episode quite a bit now. Maybe I need to change the record. Record is an unavoidable pun or unintended pun. It's for the Boston Boppers set. They were spinning some records. I feel like it was a set which was like, it felt very sort of, very hokey, very constructed, very of its time. It it kind of did the job. I mean, I've talked about fun episodes. It felt like you were watching Grease, didn't it? Yeah. It was something made 20 years after. Felt like the kind of Soul Train Mm. type deal. Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. That kind of vibe, which was nice. Yeah, and I, I like the sort of just the energy on set. So that that got my award for a best location visit. Do you think the audience got up and danced? Because it was the Cheers audience, obviously. They weren't getting a whole <laughs> new audience just for that. Do you think they got them? No, I think they. I think they got guards in. You can't dance. You can clap. Seat thirteen A is in a wolf whistle. Get him. <laughs> Are you tapping your feet, sir? <laughs> That's where the goons come in. They start smashing stuff up again. Contrary to what men without hats say, you can't dance if you want to. Cheers is filmed in the land of Footloose. (laughs) (laughs) Just John Lithgow coming in and going, this will not stand. (laughs) This award, We Are Family, Best New Family Member. Got some great contenders. Santo Carbone from episode eight, Love Thy Number. Cliff Senior from episode 10, The Bar Stooley. Donna. Unseen, much like her sister Vera, who is also invisible. And it's Cliff. It's Cliff just pretending to be other women. I said about them before. The best new family members for me are Anthony and Annie from episode four, The Groom War Clear Cell. They did, did a great job, and I'd be very interested in knowing whether they consulted Dan Hedea and Rhea Pillman, as in Timothy and Mandy, whether they talked to these actors. I feel like they must have done. As you said, it was that youth compared to their parents and you saw those similarities between them while also being their unique characters so Anthony and Annie are my favorite new family members and I look forward to seeing more of them because I think they did a stellar job and a special mention to uh, Gabrielle who is of course Annie's cousin played by Sherilyn Fenn. Great award there James. Next award we, we often talk about Cheers as if it's radio on tv where it's so, so well written that, you know, you, you could just hear it and you'd, you'd find it funny. I'm throwing that logic out the window. Best visual gag. First one, in Diane Chambers' day, get a lovely shot of the opera. And uh, after a bit of time, we, we have a sort of pan across everyone who's asleep as we finally land and realise that Diane has also fallen asleep. That was a nice little visual gag. Cliffy's big score. I don't feel like we would have laughed as hard if I couldn't see the, the powder blue suit he was wearing, but also the reveal of uh, Timothy Scott as Lucas. And his flip-flops. <laughs> yeah, and his flip-flops. 
also in a, in a jazzy suit. I think he had a bandana. Yeah, I think that was just a, a, a really good sort of visual setup. The final one, James, the winner in Diane's Nightmare when Andy Andy sort of lights his little match whilst Diane's in the dark cellar and uh, scares the hell out of everyone <laughs> in, in a very good Halloween themed episode, I'm pretty sure. Yes, good choice. I think Andy Andy's always been a one for that visual, more slapstick humour. In, in a lot of his episodes, he can get intonation, which is humour, but a lot of his character comes from that physicality. Mm, Derek McGrath does a really good job, and I, I think that it's understandable why he's sort of become a sort of fan favourite and kept revisiting the, the show, really. Yes, they just have to find ways to explain it, because there's only so many times <laughs> he's let out of prison. I've got one. I call it Five a Day. It's about healthy eating, John. Mm. It's about some vegetables. Best Claven veg. Hawaii on a squash from episode 11. Don Juan as hell. A classic one there. Turnip June Lockhart and Corn Mineral Streep. You could make a, a nice stew. That's there, not the winner. <laughs> That's not the winner. To me, there's an obvious winner. And although I'm not a cook, the obvious winner is Potato Nixon from episode four, The Green War Clearer Stuff. So, yeah, to be fair, that, don't, that one does stand out. Little suit and tie. <laughs> I'm going to follow up your, your award with Best Dressed Award. In one of the episodes, Sam gets very dressed up. He gets referred to as a sort of monkey suit. I mean, towards the end of the season, he's just wearing tuxedos all the time. Uh, so Strange Bird Photos, where Sam is pretty much in a tuxedo the whole time. In uh, Save the Last Dance for Me, we see Carla living her best life, I'd say. But I've already said this suit again. Cliffy's powder blue suit in a... Uh, if he's a big score, I think has to take home the trophy. Not Lucas and his bandana. He didn't show up for the ceremony. Of course he didn't. He had too, it's too much of a good time at the postal ceremony. Yeah, he did. But yeah, no, the powder blue suit, it had like a Dumb and Dumber vibe, didn't it? Yeah. Definitely memorable, <laughs> that suit. I've got one. Relief Pitcher. It's a award for the best guest bar staff. Throughout the season, we had a few people coming in and joining the staff at the bar. We've got Soto the Mime, his occupation, Mime, from episode seven. <laughs> I believe it's pronounced meme. Uh, Soto the Meme. We've got Santo Carboni as the Cheers resident PI <laughs> from episode eight, Love Thy Neighbor. We've got Irving as Cheers mystery man in episode 14, Suspicion. Ken was a relief bartender in episode 23, relief bartender. And this one. And this is a person who's pulled double duty in terms of their staff roles at Cheers. Guest bar staff is, of course, Fraser Crane as a janitor <laughs> in episode two, Woody Goes Belly Up, and as Cliff's psychiatrist and resident psychiatrist in episode 19, Dark Imaginings. So versatile. I think uh, he took the cake, <laughs> the special 100th episode cake, which I'm still munching away on. That, that's me done for awards, I think, James. But we do have some uh, nice trivia letters also. How many of Anthony Totelli's relatives can you name? There are 11 points available <laughs> out of the 11 which have been named so far. Blood relatives or? Relatives by blood and by marriage. Uh, well, Carboni. Yep. Carla. Yep. Nick. Loretta. Yep. And I think I'm done. There's Annette Lozaponi, his aunt, Carla's sister. Annie. I should have got that one. Gabrielle, Annie's cousin, and his siblings, Serafina, Gino, Anne-Marie, Lucia, and Ludlow. In the episodes, I will gladly pay you Tuesday, 
Diane buys a signed copy of Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. And I don't think we mentioned this in the episode, but a signed copy of the book went for sale in 2018. How much did it sell for, James? $30,000 or something like that? 100000 And Diane bought it for $500. And, and Sam put it in a bath. The book's a bit dirty. I'll just, <laughs> just give it a nice bath, nice book bath. <laughs> Within the Cheers universe, how much time in weeks has passed between the final moments of season three and the final moments of this season? Oh, I, I don't know. There's like a five month jump between season three to four plus 23 episodes. Let's say a year and a half. No, you're overestimated. It's actually 58 weeks. Ah, so that wasn't too far off. I'll tell you how this was figured out. In Strange Bedfellows Part 1, Frasier revealed it had been a year since he was jilted by Diane, and in Strange Bedfellows Part 3, it's revealed that Sam and Janet had been dating for six weeks. Oh, yeah. So 52 plus 6 is 58. Clever. An episode also related to uh, Strange of the Bedfellows. In the second part of Strange of Bedfellows, we get an appearance of Gary Hart. Could have been, should have been president. But he actually, a couple of years after his appearance in Cheers, he was the frontrunner of the 1988 election, James. What made him lose that election? Was it Where's the Beef? No. But it was Londale to Hart, Where's the Beef? That may have been 84. It could have been. Um, but... This is uh, off off of... So I, don't, I didn't do any research into to Gary Hart. <laughs> <laughs> but, you just knew it but, instinctively. But, but since watching this episode of Cheers, I've watched a film on Netflix called Frontrunner. All about Gary Hart. With Hugh Jackman. Yeah, all about yeah. his election campaign. Have you seen it? Uh, no, but if it wasn't Where's the Beef, it was Rumours of an Affair. It was Rumours of an Affair. Uh, and yes. and in, in that film, as, as I say, I'm, I'm not talking about Gary Hart, the, the politician, <laughs> I'm talking about the character which Hugh Jackman plays. He tries to avoid the media a lot, which made me think, why did he appear in Cheers? But in the film... <laughs> Which is based on true events, allegedly. He he does have a, a scandal of, of affairs and he ends up pulling out of the presidential race, which made me think it was quite interesting that he was playing Trivial Pursuit with notorious sleazy guy, Sam Malone. Well, it's certainly looking at it with, with this hindsight and retrospect is an interesting connection. Yeah. That's a great little known fact, John. Yeah. Oh, I think I'm full on that fact. Oh, got, got no more room for cake now. <laughs> Sam Malone and Gary Hart sleezing it up in Boston. Interestingly, Ted Danson is playing a politician in his new show, Mr. Mayor, where he's the mayor of Los Angeles. Is we were invited to it by Mark Evan Jackson, a kind of Ted Danson fundraising special that Mark Evan Jackson, known to you as Kevin Cosner, Captain Holt's husband from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or Sean from The Good Place, he invited us to this fundraiser and it was great. We watched all of it. And if you were there, then thank you for donating to the LA Food Bank yourself. But within that, they had the cast from Mr. Mayor and showed a trailer from it where Ted Danson plays a politician. So, you know, your heart on him alone might have uh, more relevance than you think. Oh, I knew it was relevant. It's what the people want. Who has appeared in more total episodes of Cheers so far? Woody or Frasier? Bonus points if you know the total number of episodes for both of them, not each for both. I mean, I feel like it's definitely a sort of trick question where Woody will have been in more. Woody will have been in 23. So Frasier started in season three and he was probably in about maybe six over the whole season. And he was maybe in under half of this season. So it's got to be Woody. No. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's the answer. Uh, Woody was in every episode of season four, so 26. Oh, yeah, of course. It was. Frasier 
was in 28 episodes so far, including his appearances in season three, because he was in most of the episodes of this season. So he's been in more episodes than Woody. Oh, I did terrible in that, that one. I forgot how many episodes were in this season on our review of this season. I'll edit that out. Keep it in, James. Keep it in. <laughs> ah, terrible answer from me. Frasier was in two more episodes, so he better get that casting upgrade for season five. I think he deserves it by now. Is that the last call at the bar, James? I believe it is. And uh, how, how are we going to toast this season? Our, our 100th episode? The season finale? I think you have to choose a house special. And for me, there's only one house special that I could choose. It's a chocolate cake. <laughs> I mean, I can go for that. It's a chocolate cake. Chocolate cake with 100 candles. Feels like a fire hazard. It's going to be great. As we all uh, grab a slice of this beautiful 100th episode cake. I mean, we've got to say thank you for everyone who's listening at the moment. We've recorded 100 episodes, John, and your listeners out there, you've listened to 100 episodes over 30 hours. Good job. Yeah, and you all get a slice of the cake. James is kind of really small. Oh, wafer thin slice. But yeah, no, thank you for sticking with us for 100 episodes. I don't know if I'd listen to myself for that long. I've had to listen to you, so. <laughs> it's a milestone, and we've thoroughly enjoyed these first four seasons. Yeah. Uh, this is the season I've been proudest of, both in terms of the content of this season and what we've achieved as podcasters for this season. You know, you've got to see behind the scenes with our extended crew, uh, with Barry and Troy. We've got to interview Ken Levine, and I, I think it's one 100 episodes, and I think we can say that we're proud of what we've done. And I want to express gratitude to the listeners, because we couldn't have got this far without them, John. Yeah, thank, thank you to everyone who's listening. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing you season five next week. So the milestones can continue. And on that note, James, should we sign off this episode as we uh, ra- raise our party plates of 100th episode chocolate cake? Cheers to the listeners and join us next week as we delve into season five. We'll find out who was on the other end of the phone. Yeah. Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty confident. I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to it, whoever it is, because we always love talking about Cheers and we're looking forward to talking to you about season five. Until then, this has been Where Nobody Knows Your Name, a Cheers podcast. (laughs) 